Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 11th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. A new word this week, Ubuntu. It's a South African word. Describes a concept that roughly translates to humanity toward others. Ubuntu is a Linux distribution that's based on the Debian Linux distribution, but it has a very strong emphasis on ease of installation. It's one I've been looking at for a while, and finally had the opportunity to look a little closer. Installation has always been a challenge for Linux users. The average computer geek can install it without too much of a problem. Sometimes. Even geeks run into problems. But the average person really cannot. Mark Shuttleworth is an extremely wealthy resident of South Africa, and it was his idea that a free desktop operating system that comes with a variety of open-source applications, which are also free, would be worthwhile. Now, I have to agree with that. If you are a computer geek, Ubuntu is probably not the Linux distribution that you're going to be using. You're probably using Red Hat or Fedora But if you are just an average computer user who needs a basic word processor, a basic spreadsheet program, email, and a web browser, Ubuntu might be worth looking at. The first thing to consider, at least for me, is whether an operating system can run all the programs I need. And unfortunately, the answer is no for Ubuntu. The answer is also no for Apple's OS X. That's one of the reasons that I continue to stick with Windows. But... If you don't really need Word, you really don't need Excel, you really don't need PowerPoint, Access, Photoshop, Dreamweaver, InDesign, and the BAT, my email program, yeah, Ubuntu would work. Now, you do get a word processor. It's just not Microsoft Word. You get a spreadsheet. It's just not Microsoft Excel. There is a presentation program. Yeah, not PowerPoint. You can set up a database. There are image editing programs, somewhat like Photoshop. There are web editors. There are publishing programs. So, yeah, you have all of these tools, just not the name brand tools. I've been hearing about Ubuntu for a while, but I hadn't really looked at it because I didn't have a machine I could put it on until October 2007. Version 7.10 was released, and about that time I had made a decision to upgrade my Toshiba notebook computer, the rather aging notebook computer, the one that got run over at some point in its life, to a larger hard drive. Doing that left me with a 60-gigabyte hard drive that was perfectly healthy. All it required was a caddy for about $40, and I could create a drive that I could swap in and out of the notebook. So whenever I wanted to run Ubuntu, I could just put the drive in. When I wanted to run a normal Windows machine, I could put that drive back in. So I downloaded the 700-megabyte Ubuntu distribution file. It's an ISO file. Burned it to a CD. The CD that you create is bootable, so then you can load and run Ubuntu Linux on any computer with a bootable CD drive. That's right. You can actually run it from the CD. What's that do for you? Well, first of all, it lets you test drive Ubuntu to see if it'll really work for you the way you'd like it to. And second, by running it on your hardware, you've confirmed that it's going to run on your hardware. No fancy testing programs needed. 
So once you've done that and you decide you do want to install it, you double-click an install icon on the desktop, answer a few questions such as what your name is, what you'd like your login name to be, what your password should be, and what language to use. It'll also ask you where you are so it can set the clock. And then you can decide whether to use the entire drive or partition the drive and use just a piece of it for Ubuntu. I haven't tried the partitioning part yet. Now, what impressed me is how many applications the Ubuntu distribution disk includes. You can start using the computer right away. There are, of course, the standard Linux system tools, but Ubuntu comes also with OpenOffice, which is a word processor, a spreadsheet, and a presentation program, Firefox, the web browser, Pigeon, that's an IM client that used to be called Game. It happens to be the one I prefer to use, so it was right there. It also comes with GIMP. That's a graphics application. You'll find a bunch of games, card games, for example, Sudoku, and chess. If a 700 megabyte download seems entirely too much, you can request a CD. It's free, but it'll take maybe 10 weeks to arrive. You may also hear about, or maybe you have already heard about, Kubuntu, Zubuntu, I'm presuming that's pronounced with a Z, but it's actually an X at the beginning of the word. These are official sub-projects that offer optional desktop environments, either KDE or XOffice. There are also Edubuntu, which is a sub-project designed for school environments, and Gobuntu, which adheres strictly to the Free Software Foundation's Four Freedoms, if you're interested in what they are. Do a Google search for Free Software Foundation and for Freedoms. By default, Ubuntu puts what Windows users would call the start menu at the top of the screen. Apple seems to be afraid to copy this, what I consider to be a better idea for Microsoft. Microsoft, of course, puts their start menu at the bottom of the screen, but they'll let you move it around if you want. Ubuntu puts theirs at the top, but if you want, you can move it to the bottom or the left or the right. Adding and removing programs, that's been a sore point for Linux. It's just been darned hard to do because you have to keep track of dependencies and packages, and it really has taken a lot of time and effort to install an application, even a simple application under Linux, if you're not a computer geek. Well, Ubuntu does away with all that. You get an add and remove panel that looks a lot like what Microsoft's add and remove programs panel looks like. If you ask Ubuntu to install an application that depends on another application but isn't present on your machine, then you'll be asked to approve installing the dependency application, and the installer will get the file, unpack it, and install it for you. Ubuntu knows about hundreds of applications in different categories that run under Linux. All you have to do is pick them from a menu and tell Ubuntu to have at it. The download, installation, preparation, and even updates are taken care of for you. In software that isn't free, that would earn a wow. In free software, I think I'll put some exclamation points out there at the end, maybe use all caps. Another sore point for Linux users is what hardware is supported. I plugged in a USB thumb drive, expecting to have to go through at least a few hoops. Well, interestingly, it was automatically detected and showed up right there on the desktop. That's very Mac-like. Couldn't have been easier. 
When you ask Ubuntu to install an application, it will let you know what kind of application it is you're installing. In other words, is it a full open source application? Is it commercial software? Is it something that's community maintained? For example, the VLC media player. There are different rules for how different applications are distributed and the licensing under which they are distributed, depending on what kind of application they are. And you don't have to install applications one at a time. I have installed as many as a dozen at a time. They all show up in a list of programs that are going to be downloaded and installed. I select Proceed, walk away from the machine for a while, come back, and it's all done. And if you do something really stupid, like, oh, say, for example, deleting the top panel, which is the Start menu, and then you suddenly have no way of starting programs, it's real easy to go online and find out how to undo the stupid thing you've done. That's because there are lots of discussion groups, and this would have to make Microsoft a little bit nervous. When I visited one day, there was a section called Absolute Beginner Talk. 957 people viewing it at that moment. 120,000 discussions with almost a million posts. And then there was the main support category. This would be for people who have gone beyond being absolute beginners, people who need just ongoing support. There were 4,066 people viewing at that instant, 305,000 threads, about a million five hundred thousand individual posts. Other community discussions, uh, this is an area that covers third-party projects, art applications, design applications, gaming, education. 2,338 people viewing, 109,000 threads, almost a million posts. In the general scheme of things, that's not a huge number of people. 8,000 people online at a time reading about Ubuntu compared to Microsoft. But it's a start. And keep in mind that Ubuntu is not the only Linux distribution out there. There are lots of those, and each of them has a lot of followers. Ubuntu has been around since late 2004. The goal has been to release a new version about every six months. Ubuntu includes the latest GNOME release. GNOME is the GNU Network Object Model Environment. I love these open source names. GNOME is an international effort to build a desktop environment entirely from free open source software with a primary emphasis on simplicity, usability, and making things just work. GNOME runs on most Unix-like systems. It is the default desktop environment for a lot of GNU Linux distributions in addition to Ubuntu. So you'll see it a lot of places if you look at different Linux distributions. In May of 2007, Dell announced plans to sell computers with Ubuntu installed. These machines are available in the U.S., the United Kingdom, France, and Germany. And of course, you can roll your own. The latest storm warning, a worm known as storm, continues to evolve, and each new generation is just a little bit worse than the one that preceded it. Storm is spread by a botnet of infected computers. What's a botnet? Well, a botnet is a group of software robots that run automatically on groups of computers that have been turned into zombies so that they can be controlled remotely by crackers. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The latest variant of Storm runs what is essentially a hot fix on antivirus programs, except it's more like a hot break than a hot fix. The process doesn't remove the antivirus program, but effectively renders it brain dead. Why? 
Well, that makes the process very hard to detect. The antivirus process continues to run. From the outside, it looks like it's running just fine. But ain't nobody home in there. It can no longer detect storm. Users aren't concerned. And even worse, this process can fool network access control systems. If you work for a big business, you're probably familiar with network access control This is a system designed to deny network access to any computer that's not running a current antivirus program. After storm, an antivirus program looks like it's running, but it's not doing anything. So it'll slide right past a network access control point. Storm has its own root kit. It can make itself invisible. It also changes its signature twice an hour. Even the root kit changes every few weeks. This is one of the reasons it's so difficult to tell how large the network is. The estimate ranges from 6 to 15 million machines, might be as high as 50. The most reasonable estimates are in the lower range, but even that's pretty scary. And Storm defends itself, too. If you try to set up a debugger or follow its trail, Storm tracks you, launches a counterattack in the form of a distributed denial-of-service attack. Researchers are all cautious about announcing too much about what they know about Storm because of those defenses. There's one account of an Israeli company that developed an anti-spam program in 2006. It was a pretty good one, maybe a little bit too good. The company found itself in the crosshairs of a relentless series of distributed denial-of-service attacks from spammers. Eventually, they went out of business. Speaking of spammers, those wild and crazy Viagra guys are at it again. This time they want to sell me Viagra from the official site for 70% off. Or maybe 73% off. Or, oh wait, make that 74%. Ah, how about 79% off? Within a few days, I received all of those October special offers. In fact, within 60 seconds, four offers came in with discounts ranging from 71% to 79%. This raises a question... Why the different discounts? Your first thought might be that they changed the number to avoid spam filters, but the creeps who send this kind of crud have other ways around spam filters. I think what we're seeing here is some good old-fashioned test marketing. Direct marketers know that sometimes minor changes in the offer, the headline, or the illustration can have a dramatic effect on the response. Does a magazine that offers six issues for $9.99 pull better than an offer for 12 issues at $18? Does one offer or the other have a better conversion rate, the number of test subscribers who stick around after the trial is ended and then pay full rate? When a direct marketer does tests such as these, the list is segmented so the marketer will know which prospects received which offers. Well, in this case, I got all the offers. And that means instead of being an effective test marketing tool, it's just stupid. Of course, anybody who thinks they're going to be able to buy any legitimate medicine for such a gigantic discount probably isn't too bright, so maybe it's not really a big deal. In nerdly news, Europeans can now join the scramble for iPhones. Apple's iPhone went on sale in Germany and Britain toward the end of the week. The Internet-enabled cell phone includes an iPod media player. People lined up for the devices in the U.S., and about 1.5 million have been sold since the end of June. I've heard that described as a debacle. If this is a debacle, Apple would like a few more debacles like that. Apple dropped the price of the 8-gigabyte phone from $600 to $400, then discontinued the $500 4-gigabyte version. The company had to apologize to those who had paid full price and offered $100 credits to them. 
In Britain, buyers are going to be shelling out about $570 for the 8-gigabyte iPhone. It'll sell for $590 in Germany. The difference is because of value-added taxes. The phones go on sale in France through the state-run telephone system toward the end of November on the 29th. So if you happen to be in France, you want to pick up an iPhone, make sure you're there after November 29th. Because the phone was designed for the slowpoke U.S. market, it will not operate on Europe's faster cellular networks. However, if the user wanders within range of a Wi-Fi hotspot, it will connect using that technology. And that is faster. Let's say you open your email, you receive a message from a friend who claims to be stuck in Nigeria and out of money. Hmm. Maybe the first thing you would want to ask yourself is, first, has your friend ever expressed a desire to visit Nigeria? And second, does the message sound at all like something your friend might have written? The response to both of those questions is likely going to be no. You're probably wondering why I would pose such an odd scenario. Well, the New York Times has the story of a man who lost control of his Yahoo email account. Somebody broke into his account, started sending messages to everyone in his address book. The message was written in all caps. So if the message had a sound, it would sound like this. How are you doing? I want you to keep this confidential between both of us. I know that I can put my trust in you on this Please do not let me down. Right now I am in Africa, Nigeria. I came here on a trip to see a friend, and when I got here, I lost my wallet containing the address of my friend and his contact phone number, along with my ATM card and other valuables. Chances are the guy with the Yahoo account knows about the caps lock key on the computer and probably doesn't type his letters in all caps. But the scammers, at least the Nigerian kind, seem not to have figured that out. And they're even a little tentative about where they should put punctuation and whether spaces go before or after periods or both. So the message continued. So right now I do not even have any money on me. I am staying in a hotel now. And the manager is already ranting over his money. And as time goes by... The bills are increasing. And what was it this message wanted? Well, the New York Times quoted the rest of the message as saying, I would want you to loan me $2,000. I promise to pay you back as soon as I get back. I would want you to help send the money via Western Union. Get back at me ASAP. Hope to hear from you. And then it was signed by the name of the victim. Now, would you respond to a message like that? Get back at me ASAP? Well, there's a dead giveaway. Americans just don't talk like that. These messages went out to 600 contacts in the victim's contact list. Many of those contacts happened to be journalists because the guy was a PR person. Some of them called the victim to see what was going on. So if this happened to one person, chances are very high that it's happened to more than one person. Just something else to be on the lookout for. But now you can be on the lookout for the end of TechBiter Worldwide. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 11th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, you can send an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.